0: Exodus. Last week, we talked about the first nine plagues of the Exodus. I don't know if some of that was new to you. Um, I want to remind you today, as in any day during this series, if you want to stop me and ask a question, or if you want to disagree, or if you want to ask for clarification, or whatever, you are welcome to stop me, and I will do my very best to answer whatever questions you have. Or, if I don't have the answer, we'll figure it out. Or I'll send you to figure it out, and you can come back and report. Uh, But I want you to have the opportunity to do that, especially when we talk about places where it just seems like this is out of God's character. This just seems like a story that doesn't belong in a book that says that God's basic character is love. In fact, there's a lot of people today that would say that we have a very hypocritical faith because of stories like this. And while this is significant and severe, we can at times see justification based on the actions that have happened against this group of people who are being oppressed. But as we go through um, the rest of the Old Testament, as we eventually get to the rest of the Old Testament, uh, there are other places in Scripture that God's loving character is questioned. Um, And so we're going to begin talking about that today and what does that mean and how do we understand this story. And eventually it's going to come back and I'm going to end with a question I want you to wrestle with this week. Um, What we have come to from this moment is uh, a nation of people rising up within another nation. The Hebrews have grown up in Egypt, and for several hundred years now, uh, they have been just working for Pharaoh. They have forgotten, Egypt has forgotten what their forefather, Joseph, has done for them as a nation. And Pharaoh, this is a new Pharaoh looking down on this group of people, and he has forgotten That if you decide to partner with God, with Yahweh, um, things go well. And if you decide to move away and to act within this world in a way that hurts others, God is not okay with that. And so he looks around and he begins to see that this group, this nation or tribe, these Hebrews, these slaves that are building and creating bricks for all of this growing empire, he becomes afraid. And what he says is, these people are growing so quickly, they're going to outgrow us, they're going to rise up against us, and they're going to leave and take all of our wealth with them. It is at its most basic um, place, uh, a, a ruler who has a scarcity mindset of the world, there is not enough, I must get everything I can have. And no one in the world that we know of at this point has more than Pharaoh does, and yet it is not enough. And so he begins to put his foot on the back of their necks, and he begins to say, you will work harder, and he enslaves them, and they continue to grow. Then he he enlists two midwives, and he says, I want you to go, and I want you, as these boys are being born, just make it so that they don't survive the birth. And you don't have to let them know what you're doing. We We just need this to stop. And the midwives chose not to do what Pharaoh said. Instead, they believed God and they continued to grow. So Pharaoh got angry again and in, now he says I want you to go out and the firstborn male of of any of these families just throw them in the river and you can drown them. And so we have this mass murder happening within the nation of Egypt for this oppressed group of people who have no power, no influence, no safety, no security. And they are crying out to God. It is a symbol of this blood crying out from the Nile River to God, just as when Cain killed Abel, and Abel's blood cried out to God, and he heard that cry, and he came and he approached Cain. What we see over and over again in the story of Exodus is a story of God hearing the cry of the oppressed and choosing this group of oppressed people to be the people that are going to ultimately change the world forever. But in order to do that, he's going to have to navigate the problems of politics. and He's going to have to navigate the problems of power and influence. And then even if you take this group of, of slaves that have been enslaved for hundreds of years and just magically pick them up and move them to another part of the world and set them down... They've got to figure somehow out how they're going to govern themselves. How are they going to run things? How are they going to make sure everyone's fed? How are they going to take care of each other? Because up until this point, while we know there are elders within this group, they have not governed themselves. And so God rescues and rises up, raises up this one Hebrew child who some of the oral traditions say his mother was one of the midwives that refused to refused to kill the children in the second attempt from Pharaoh to squash their growth. And she creates for him an ark. And she covers it with bitumen and pitch, which is the exact symbolism and the exact language of the ark that rescued Noah because God is doing something new. So last week we talked through the first nine uh, plagues, or we discovered that a plague can also be called a strike. God was striking them. In fact, other places within this story, that is the language they use. God is going to strike them, which is going to become important as we move beyond this part of the story, because we're about to wrap up movement one, and we're going to about to go into movement two, where you're going to see Abraham, Moses, striking things, but God is striking Egypt. And we found that there are three groups of three in these first nine strikes. And they started with the same formula, they ended with the same formula, and they very much mimicked the creation story. If we look back through Genesis chapter 1, what we find in Genesis chapter 1 is um, that God created, and ten times it says God created in those six days. And then we find that there are 10 strikes, or 10 acts of decreation, in which just the order of the world seems to be turning itself over on to Pharaoh. And the first in all three groups, Moses is told to go to Pharaoh, and he is to approach him by morning, as Pharaoh is approaching the river, and he is supposed to give him a warning. And then... The second plague in each of the groups of three is he goes to him at midday, and then the third and each of those three groups is unexpected. It just happens. And we went through nine of those, and we found that not only is this God trying to up the ante to let them go, what we actually see is that God is going to war with the Egyptian gods because each of the plagues addresses one of the primary gods of Egypt at the time. Either it was an area in which they controlled, or that particular god was represented by that particular plague. For example, the head of a frog. Then we have these crazy things happening within there that just seem to go back and be callbacks to the creation, where you have one of the plagues being the frogs just representing this Removal of the line between the waters and the earth, which was so necessary for life to exist, because frogs exist in both. We begin in the story of creation with God bringing light to push back the darkness. And in the ninth plague that we ended with last week, he brings darkness back. And for three days, Egypt is within the darkness. For whatever reason, the Hebrews are still able to see. And then seven times throughout uh, these nine strikes or ten strikes that we're going to see, God says he is doing these things so that he will know that he is Yahweh, that he is the God of gods. And in that we enter into the tenth plague. And the reason we've set the tenth plague apart is because the story sets the tenth plague apart. While we have all of the other nine plagues sandwiched together in a couple of chapters, the tenth plague gets two chapters all to itself. And it's also one of the places that is just honestly hard to to digest. It's hard to digest the story when you're talking about God initiating the killing of the firstborn of every family and every um, animal within Egypt. And yet, no one will be touched on the Hebrew side. At least that's how we think we know the story. That's not exactly how the story goes. There's some questions we've got to answer, and if you're new to Journey, you'll find that When we start talking about the scriptures, we do talk about them a little bit differently. Rather than um, pull out a couple of things and and really expound on those couple of things, part of our goal through series like Exodus is that we really know what this story is about. We really know what the scriptures are about. We dive in, we let them, them pull us in, and we don't just go and read and go, oh, wow, that's interesting. We allow them to teach us something about ourselves, something about God, and something about the world so we do a deep dive into these kinds of stories, and what I hope and what I pray is that you are going through and you are doing some study yourself, you are reading yourself, and you are struggling with these things yourself, so that at some point you begin to say, oh wow, I think this is what God is saying to me now, even though this is something that happened thousands of years ago. So let's dive in, and we will find in Exodus chapter 4 is where we're going to begin, even though we're starting way back towards the beginning, um, that the 10th plague, the thing that's going to happen is being foreshadowed from the very beginning. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. You'll remember those were the, you know, put your staff on the ground and it'll turn to a snake. Uh, You know, put your hand in your robe and pull it back out. It'll be leprous. Put it back in and pull it back out. It'll be fine. So he gave him some things that he can go and, and, do, and he actually had Aaron do them um, to convince him. And so that's what they went to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now this is before any of the plagues happened. This is before the announcement of the 10th plague in which God is saying, you have taken the firstborn of all of this oppressed people's families. You have taken their firstborn, and they are my firstborn. And if you do not let them go, I will take your firstborn. This is all from the very beginning. But then this interesting question comes in. Because we know the story. We've read the story. They're going to eventually be let go, and they're not coming back. And yet that is not exactly what God says he's asking for. This is not what he tells Moses that he wants to happen. It is what happens, but this is not what he presents to Moses, and this is not what Moses presents to Pharaoh, which gives us the interesting question of uh, how long is God asking for? Is he asking for three days? Or is he asking for forever? And if he means for forever, why is he asking for three days? Because there may be more to this story than we allow it to be. Simply God intended always for them to leave. God intended them always to wander the desert. God intended them always to end up in the promised land. What if there was a possibility that God had multiple possibilities out of this situation? Just like in most of our lives... I remember when I grew up and we, we started dating, Dieter and I have talked about this many times. We grew up in a system that said you have one soulmate in the world and you gotta go out and find them and you know there's a lot of stress and pressure about that. Like you gotta go find the one, what if I don't find the one? What if I don't visit the one? What if my one lives in Siberia or something like that, you know? But usually God has multiple ways of accomplishing his goal. And we read these stories often thinking God always in intended for them to work out the, exactly the way they did work out. Somehow that makes him more God. But what if God has the option for it to work out in a different way? If you're not sure what I'm talking about, we we drop back earlier to Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying... I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I I see your oppression. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hizzites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders, elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that my, that I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do it in it. After that he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask for her neighbor. Ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in the house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now he's absolutely saying what's going to happen, but again he's not saying let them go, he's saying let them go a three days' journey so that they can come and serve and worship me. Well, that seems like a very interesting place to not say, Tell him to let you leave because you've got you're going to found a new nation for us. And you're going to change the world through that new nation. Instead, he says, just tell him you need to go out into the desert and and you're going to spend some time with me. That's all you need to say. But he's not going to do it. So I'm going to have to compel him to let you go. And then when that finally happens, you're basically going to plunder them. So which is it? And Why is that the case? One of the reasons I think this is true is that Yahweh is showing the Israelites and the Egyptians that he is a God that desires relationship. Now, how do we come to that conclusion? Egypt is not a place that is confused about deities or gods. They have plenty of them. They have hundreds of them. Um, even the ones addressed in the plagues are only a few of the many gods they had for, that they had. And they had gods for everything. What they didn't have was a relationship with their gods. Whenever they needed it to rain so that their crops would flourish, they would pray that the god that controls the rain would eventually cause it to rain. But they had no way of causing that to happen, and they had no interaction with that god. They would just offer sacrifices and and worship in hopes that the God of rain would do that, or maybe you know the the God of the sun Ra would relent and not bake them so terribly, and instead would let the God who controls the weather allow the rain to come or or the earth so that the earth would be fertile. They understood that there were things that happened beyond their power that there must be some other deity that was in control of. But they had no relationship with that God. Their gods would never say, come out to the desert with me. Instead, the call was always, give me, give me, give me, and I might give something back to you in return. Very transactional. One of the things we talked about last week is that's what idols do. Idols promise you everything, but they take everything. And they give you nothing. So it's very interesting that God is doing something that none of the gods of Egypt would have done at this point, and that is inviting them out to be with them to know Him, to talk with Him, to serve Him, and to worship Him. This is the God Jehovah, the God Yahweh. This is the God who sent His Son to die on the cross for us, to say, I want to have a relationship with you. It's not just that I want you to serve me. I don't want you just to come to church and read the Bible and, you know, do some service activities from time to time. Like, I want you to know me. I want you to come and spend time with me. When we come here together in this place, we can absolutely get locked into just a pattern of behavior in which, what do you do on Sunday mornings Well, we just go to church? But instead, we gather with God and with each other. Absolutely, you can gather with God anywhere, but there are times that God says, I want you to gather with me. That's what we see happening here is Moses saying to Pharaoh, let us go gather with our God. And what we're going to find is that Pharaoh does not like them worshiping or mentioning or bowing down to any other gods than the gods of Egypt. And in the system of Egypt, in the system of this empire, while you may have multiple gods, there is one god who rules them all. And while Ra was the god who was kind of like the the premier god of all the gods, in Egyptian culture and Egyptian politics, there was only one that trumped Ra, and that was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the god of gods. And like all of the gods of Egypt, he asked and he took and he promised but yet he never gave anything god is saying i am a different kind of god i am not like the gods you know i'm not like the gods of today if we were to sit down and think about it what what would we say are the gods of of america or who who are the gods of 2023 What are the things that we bow down to and that we worship? What are the idols that we just hope that if we appease them, they will give us what we want. And we've been trying to appease and appease and appease, and we never get to the place where we get what we're looking for. What happened then happens today. And if we look at really where our priorities in our lives are, when we look at where our focuses in life are, when we look at how we treat people and how we treat our faith, it demonstrates where we are and what we believe about God. God is inviting us into personal relationship. Come out to me. Three days into the desert. Spend time with me. This is what you're to ask Pharaoh for. Now why would God not just say, just have them let you go. Or why don't we jump to plague number 10, because that seemed really effective. Why even bother with plagues one through nine? Like, just go straight for the jugular. I mean, he'll let us go, bang, bang, over. Or, you know, God, you you could just kind of work it out where Pharaoh doesn't wake up one morning, and you could put somebody else, maybe Moses, in his place, and now Moses is Pharaoh, and now they have it great, Why is God not just doing something like that? It seems less bloody. It seems more loving. Why is he going through all of this theater? Much of the plays, as serious as they are, are very much theater. Demonstrate something to the world. Something God is trying to do. He's showing them he is a God that desires a relationship. And what's interesting is, is pharaoh's response he says no because he doesn't know the name of yahweh exodus chapter 5 verse 1 we're working our way up to our text for today afterward moses and aaron went and said to pharaoh that says the lord the god of israel let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness again we'll be coming back you just need to let us go for a few days we're coming back But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. His response is, I don't know this God. This God may want you to come out into the desert, but I don't know this God. I don't know his name, which we know has been revealed as Yahweh. I am, I was, I will always be. He is the preeminence of being, all things in being, find its its source in him. But I don't know him. This is one of the reasons we do talk about personal relationships of faith in Christianity. And it's been said before that 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 is not how the Bible talks about it. And yet we see it over and over again. This is what God is calling us to. I want you to be with me. I want to be with you. God was walking with them in the garden. God is trying to bring us back to the garden. When we get to the tabernacle in just a, in just a couple of weeks, then we're going to find that the tabernacle is a symbol for the Garden of Eden where God is himself staying and coming to a place where he can meet with us. When we get next week, when we talk about the Passover, and then we're going to take communion together, we talk about the Passover and They go to the mountain, God is on the mountain, and God invites all of them up the mountain to be with him. But only one goes, Moses. That's what we'll discover next week. God is seeking something more than just obedience. He is seeking something more than just don't mess up. He is seeking something more than, make, you know, on the balancing scale, make more good choices than bad choices. But yet God is looking for something more, and that something more will eventually influence everything else about our lives. Our relationship with Him will influence every other relationship within our lives. Relationships are what this thing is about. Jesus has, Himself has said. We say this over and over again because it is so important to grasp the big, big, big picture of Scripture, the point of all of this, the point of life, good life, eternal life Loving God and loving others—that has to start somewhere. How do you learn to do that? How does a group of people that have been enslaved learn to love each other when they've just been in survival mode for the last several generations? I think that's what this story is, in in large part, is about. All right, and. by the way, I don't I think I mentioned this earlier. Seven times throughout these plagues, it is said, "Do this so that Pharaoh will know I am Yahweh." He wants him to know who he is. He wants him to know his name. All right, we're not going to go through all of the story of the tenth plague. We're just going to go through the first part of Exodus 12, uh, and then I just have a few things I want to share with you. and Then we're going to be done for today. But this is the story. This is the beginning of the story. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This is Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now just before we jump ahead too far here, I don't want us to miss what's happening in verse, one, or verse 2. This month shall be for you the beginning of month, It shall be the first month of the year for you. What he's saying is this is going to be the first day of the first month of the first year for you. Of all the things that have happened in the past, this is a new beginning for your people. This is one of the reasons that we talk in the New Testament about being a new creation. At the moment at which you come to faith in Christ... You become a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He is saying for them, this is like a birthing event for you as a nation. This is the first day of the first month of the first year of your story. This is a new beginning. I joked with uh, Jake, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago. He was doing his last spring break and his undergraduate degree. I said, enjoy, it. it's the last one you ever get. And while it's not exactly true, it's partially true, right, college graduates? (laughs) Definitely true. There was always something about school I loved. The first of the semester, the end of the semester with another semester coming. Wouldn't it be nice if life was like school and every six months you got a fresh start? You got to start over? Like all the problems you have at work, like at the six-month period, they're all gone because you're working with all different people in a whole different place, you know? And not that be just great? There's, there's something about fresh starts that are just so appealing within life, but only for those that don't absolutely love everything about their current life. And he's saying for them who do not love everything about their current life, this is a fresh start for you. I am creating for you a fresh start. This is one of the reasons when we look at people and we look at our, our pasts or their pasts. This is why we don't hold people's pasts over them, against them. This is why we don't hold a record of wrongs, because there is a place where we get to become new and we don't keep dragging the old with us. Like our second series we ever did as a church was called Baggage, and it was it was this. I, we had like this luggage up on the stage, and we had you know all kinds of words stamped on the luggage for all the baggage we carried. And man, I was just, I, I, we were setting people free. And I, I mean, it were just really good sermons. The really early stuff was way better than the later stuff, just so you know. But that stuff's not even online anymore, so it's, it's, you've just lost it. But it was about halfway through that series that I, in the middle of a sermon, I just stopped. And I was like, and I didn't say this out loud, but inside I was like, oh my gosh. This was not for anybody but me. <laughs> and I recognized the baggage I had brought with me. There's just something about fresh starts that will change the world around you. And it was in that time that I recognized I've got to let some of this stuff go. Now, saying I need to let some of this stuff go and letting some of this stuff go are two completely different things. Can they get an amen? This is the beauty of Fresh Starts, and God is a God of new beginnings. Whether we're talking about our faith, whether we're talking about our communities after a pandemic, God is a God of fresh starts. Even we're talking about a group of people that are being oppressed by the strongest nation in the land. Verse seven. Then they shall take some of the blood from the lamb that's just been sacrificed. By the way, sacrifice has not yet been instituted, so we're not talking about atonement for sin here. This is, that comes, you know, later in this story. It has not come now. It really, the only there's only a couple of places that we really see sacrifice before here um, in the Old Testament and. One is Cain and Abel, this crazy story where we still don't fully know the whole backstory, and that they both bring these offerings. We don't know why they're bringing these offerings other than the fact that they just are. And one is rejected and one is accepted, which causes what we think of as the first murder in Scripture where Cain kills his brother. We have this other you know, incredible story that is very similar to this one um, in which Abraham is is tasked with killing his firstborn son and they climb up to the mountain it's like a it's like a, a you know 4 hour walk up this mountain but it takes him 3 days to do it because he's so dreading this moment in which god has said will you give me your firstborn and so he goes up the mountain and, and straps him to the altar and god provides a substitute provides a lamb in the thicket not unlike that story, but we've not really seen sacrifice yet. So when we understand what's happening here, we're not talking about what happens later at the temple. This is something very specific for here and in this moment. They took some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Now, when we see pictures of this, uh, we have like this swash of blood across the top of the door, but literally it's saying paint the entire doorway. <laughs> the entire doorway. "...top, bottom, both sides, painted all with the blood of these lambs that have been slaughtered. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn." In this manner you eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Because what they don't know is that they're about to make a massive journey in just a very short period of time. Eat up, get your stuff together, and be ready. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Remember, a plague is, can also be translated a strike. God is striking the land. This is a hard scripture to read, especially if you have kids or little kids. Like, how could God do such a thing? One of the things we have to remember is the big picture of what is God actually trying to do in the world. A lot of times we think that what God's trying to do in the world is make my life better. Well, I, I would agree. That is a big picture of what God's trying to do. He is trying to make our lives better. But how do we define better? A lot of times we define better as in, well, I know what's better for me. My problems go away. (laughs) I have more resources, so I don't ever worry about whether or not I'm going to have enough. I mean, the problem people in my life just kind of disappear. But that's really not what God ever said he intended to do in the world. God is doing something else. And whether we're talking about this story, or where we're when we're talking about the walking in, and they don't exactly walk in, but the inhabiting the promised land, we have places in which God says, wipe them out. When we get into Um, places in Judges, and we get further on in the Old Testament, and he's like, don't leave anyone, a child or a lamb, standing. In fact, King Saul is eventually going to lose his crown because God says, I want you to wipe them out and don't leave anything. And then as God comes to talk to uh, Saul, he's like, what's that lamb I hear mewing in the background? Oh, that's nothing. That's nothing. And he has kept some of the stuff that he was supposed to destroy. What kind of God would do that? What kind of God would do this? A couple of questions I would struggle with if I were you when you go through the story. One is, why did he ask for three days instead of, hey, we're going to get you out of here. We're going straight to the tenth plague, and we're going to get you out of here as quickly as possible. Why did he say three days? A second question that we, we can ask through here is, who did he say this would work for? Was it only the Hebrews? Or could anyone have slaughtered a lamb and painted the doorposts and be saved? Could anyone have done that? See, what if what God's trying to do here? is say, Pharaoh, there was a time we worked together. And you think, well, when was that time? Well, that was Joseph. And you have Joseph interpreting these dreams, and you have this great famine coming in the land, and then Joseph says, here's what your dream means. Um, For seven years, you're going to need to store stuff up and be prepared because there's going to be seven years of famine, and it's going to be devastating in the land. We actually have historical evidence that around this period of time, there are evidences of not only great famine, but massive losses of life because of famine. And Egypt was always a stronghold during famine because they had the Nile. They had a source of water that the other outlying areas did not have. And so in that time in which Joseph was was one of the descendants of Abraham in which God had promised, I'm going to build a nation out of you and... We're going to redeem the world through through your family. Joseph goes in and Pharaoh works with him and it becomes Egypt's greatest accumulation of resources and wealth. People first come and they buy all the grain that they can buy and when they run out of money, then they start um, giving them their lands and now they're kind of renting their lands from Egypt. So now they not only have everyone's money, now they have everyone's land and then eventually They gave themselves to Egypt because they just wanted to eat. And we have a time in which Pharaoh is elevating people and helping others and not oppressing. But this Pharaoh is different. What if God is saying, there was a time like we could have worked together, but now you must choose. And the only ones who chose were the slaves. Now, do I know that that's the case? I think whenever I don't really know if that's the case or not, I ask myself, how many boxes in the rest of Scripture does this check? Like, does this make other places in Scripture make sense? Does this bear out with the other places in Scripture that talk about these kinds of things, where God is offering consistently a second chance? Yes, it does bear that test for me. And one of the questions that we have to wrestle with is, what if that's what God was wanting to have happen, that they refused to choose God? He wanted them to know his name. He wanted them to know he was the God of gods. He wanted them not to succumb to this, this strike. But this was, they had given him no choice. Another thing we get from this story, and I shared a little bit last week, is this idea of restorative justice versus retributive justice, retribution, where God is restoring rather than punishing. And that also checks a lot of boxes for me for a lot of those other stories where God is working in a consistent path. And we don't have to wonder what that is. He tells us right in, in, in Genesis what it is. I'm working to redeem the world. I'm working to redeem the world. I'm working to redeem the nations. I'm going to choose a people for myself, and through these people, we are going to rescue the nation. I am going to bring people back to the place in which I created them to be. I am going to bring them back to Eden. I'm going to create a tabernacle that looks like Eden to represent coming back to Eden. And then when they are established in the promised land, they're going to build a temple, and the temple is going to look like Eden with palm trees and animals and all kinds of things littered throughout because... I want them back, and I want them to experience the life I created for them, the kind in which they love me and I love them, and they love each other, and they work towards each other's good, and no one ever goes without need, and everyone's taken care of, and we live life in partnership together, managing this beautiful creation in which we are helping one another, and we are living in this beautiful community that we today find so stinking difficult. There are times within this story that God says, You have taken us off the rails. I'm not giving up on humanity. What other stories fit in this idea of restorative justice? We read about the story of Noah and the flood, another story in which we read and we're like, Oh my gosh, what kind of God would do that? Kind of God who says evil was spreading all over the world. It was awful. Way people treated each other. I mean, the the whole point of how I created them—they've lost it all. There's no saving it. But I'm going to rescue humanity through Noah. We fast forward to the Tower of Babel, destroys the tower, separates people. This is where language comes in, and we read later later in the Old Testament that God separates the people according to. Um, to their gods. Yet none of these people were God's people. Until this moment when an oppressed group of people, now these are my people. They will know my name. Restorative justice is not the same thing as retributive justice. It's not just punishing. It's restoring. Now that may be splitting hairs for some. For me, it. It's very consistent with what God says he's trying to do over and over and over again. Yahweh is turning Pharaoh's evil up on himself. And he's going to take the firstborn to do it because he remembers that Pharaoh took the firstborn of the Israelites. This is the first substitute that we really see other than what happens with Abraham. Where there's a substitution of blood. This is not atonement for sin, but this there is a substitution of blood that would, would rescue a group of people. This is how Jesus is going to talk about Passover. He is a substitutionary sacrifice of atonement. This is also where he talks about I am the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. We find these substitutions throughout. In Exodus chapter 11, verse 6, we see this again, what God is doing in these moments. It says, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been or ever will be again. And you'll know they say that more than once on these plagues. Something is going to be so bad as something that has never happened before and nothing ever will be as bad as this again, which is also the story of the flood. Such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of these people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Exodus 12, verse 29, the plague happens, the strike happens, and at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. How would a loving God do this? I think there are three primary things. God is exercising restorative justice in the world. Pharaoh is self declared that he is God and he is corrupting the character of who God really is. He is restoring the world to how it was created. And I do there there is a place for caution here. Like we, we tend to go to Jesus and say Jesus just said love each other. But Jesus also fashioned a whip and turned over tables when we begin to corrupt what God is trying to do, God acts. And a caution for us. Am I corrupting what God is doing or am I a partner with what God is doing? God is also showing the nations of the world through Egypt that Pharaoh and his gods are powerless against him. They cannot stop him. And God is showing the world that dismissing him does not reduce his power. We can say God doesn't exist or he doesn't matter. It does not mean he doesn't exist or that he does not matter. Pharaoh said, I don't know him. I don't know his name. I don't recognize him. I'm going to ignore him. Well, you can only ignore him for so long. This is what I want to leave you with. God wants us to see the difference between empire and kingdom. Empire rules through power. heavy hand, through enslaving, through killing. Kingdom is built in a different way. Part of the problem we're going to see through Moses is Moses learned how to lead. Moses learned how to judge. Moses learned how to legislate. Moses learned how to lead a nation of people through the empire of, of Egypt. And God is going to continually call him, but I want you to do it differently. And he struggled with that so many times that eventually he was not allowed himself to go into the promised land because ultimately at the end of the day, even though he did so many incredible things, he still was bringing Egypt with him. And today we have to look at the ways that we bring Egypt with us. Where do we use power and might? Where do we oppress others? Where do we make it about us getting all the things we need, ignoring the needs of others? How are we empire rather than kingdom? Because kingdom is very different. God wants us to see the difference between empire and kingdom. God also wants the world to know that he is the God of gods. Not Ra, not Pharaoh, not any of the gods that we would maybe even ignore and not call a god, but in our, our way of doing life we exercise as if they are God's to us. God wants the world to know he is the God of God. None can stand against him. Five, two, Exodus 5.2 said, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. But now he knows. Now he knows. God wants us to remember who he is and what he is working towards. This is our daily life here. God wants us to remember who he is and what he is working for. He has a long-range plan that began in Genesis and is not completed until Revelation, and it's the same plan throughout all of Scripture. We read Him about it in Genesis chapter 12, where it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we know that that fulfillment comes in Christ. This is what he's been doing from the beginning. This is what he's saying, if you know me, if you love me, if you're following me, this is what you're going to be about, redeeming the world. How are we doing that? How are we partnering with him? How are we demonstrating this message? How are we loving others? How are we trying to get Egypt out of ourselves so that we can be a people who are about the kingdom? And that is my question I leave you. How am I working towards the things that God is working towards? See, one of our greatest and most prolific prayers is God, take care of me, meet my needs. How are we actually working towards the things he's wanting us to work towards? That's the question that we're asking as a church. That's why we're rethinking some things. And that's why we're trying to understand where we are are culturally. The Bible doesn't change. The culture changes. How do we engage that culture? Because God is still doing the thing until Jesus returns that he was doing in Genesis 12 working to bless all the families of the earth. We get to be a part of that. Father.